If we've not met, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me just add my welcome to, to Wilson's. Uh, we're going to put down stakes in Psalm 120 this morning. So if you can crane all the way back to our very first Bible reading, the one that we stood and read responsively, I'd invite you to turn there now. Psalm 120 uh, in your Bible if you have one with you. And just before we jump in, uh, let's, um, let's pray. I want to ask for help. Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I ask, Father, that you would send your life-giving spirit to open your living and active word to us because we want to see Jesus this morning. So we ask this in his name. Amen. So, I'm actually delighted by what's happening this morning. We've got a few more weeks until our rector, Aubrey Spears, is back in the saddle, back in the pulpit. And until he gets here, we're going to be pausing in, in an, uh, an area of Scripture where we haven't paused for quite some time, the Psalms. And specifically, the Psalms, uh, the 14 Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, known as the Psalms of Ascent. Now, why are they called Psalms of Ascent? To be honest... We're not entirely sure, except for, you'll notice if you just, uh, if you've got a Bible like mine where they kind of litter across the pages, the superscription, a song of a sense, a song of a sense, they've all got this common superscription. That's the only obvious thing right there that it wears on the sleeve that they've got in common. But there is another thing that all of them, many of them share in common. Several of these 14 psalms focus on the city of Jerusalem, Zion. And even when Jerusalem isn't explicitly mentioned, there are these tantalizing hints that suggest that maybe where it's not mentioned, Jerusalem is the answer to a question that we ought to be asking. Let me give you an example. Um, Hopefully I'm not going to tread on anybody who's preaching in the next few weeks. Psalm 121, it doesn't mention Jerusalem. But it begins, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? See, Jerusalem isn't mentioned directly. It's not even mentioned in the psalm. But it helps if you know that the Hebrew word for hills is the same word for mountains. Harim. So you might not see it immediately. But that question from Psalm 121, whence cometh my help? It gets answered a few psalms later in Psalm 125. From where does my help come? Psalm 125 answers, as the mountains, the hills, the harim, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. So, question, from where does my help come? Answer, from the temple of the Lord, Jerusalem. Now, Jewish readers of the Psalms have seen this for a long time. And for good reason. So if you go to the book of Exodus, you don't need to go there now. Israel is told to go up, to ascend, before God three times a year to offer sacrifice. Now in the book of Exodus, there's not a temple yet, right? They've just got a tent. It's going to be a long time before there's a temple. But in time, these sacrificial journeys for these three occasions, they came to be centered in the temple. So the Jews would go up to the temple. And When they did, then the Jews would reach intuitively for the Psalms of Ascent like a pilgrimage soundtrack. Like if you've got exquisite taste in music like me, 
then when you go on a cross-country trip, you listen to, you know, The Unforgettable Fire by U2 or whatever your album is. They just intuitively reached for it. So Jesus, we can easily imagine him praying these psalms during his journey with Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 2. You know the story, he goes to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, gets lost as a boy. You can easily imagine them praying, praying these psalms on the way. Or in John chapter 7, when, when Jesus and his disciples go up for the Feast of Booths, you know, the streams of living water will flow. You know that passage? Again, you can easily imagine Jesus and his disciples on the way up to Jerusalem, praying these psalms of ascent on their way to Jerusalem. Now, why am I belaboring the point about Jerusalem? Well, because if you've noticed, Jerusalem is conspicuously absent from Psalm 120. And the reason for that omission is really important. The journey to God begins from a place of absolute honesty. These psalms lead us in pilgrimage to the city of God, but they don't begin there. The journey of ascent begins in the depths. It's a journey up. So if we want to see God, Psalm 120 positions us at the proper starting point. The journey to God begins from a place of complete honesty. And that means, in the first place, that we're honest about our weakness. The psalmist begins his prayer from a position of weakness. Look at verse 1. In my distress... The old translations just put it, trouble. In my trouble, I called to the Lord. Now, here's what I want you to notice. For the psalmist, the position of weakness is also the position of trust. See, the psalmist, it's, it's a good thing to air our grievances before God. But the psalmist isn't just doing that. He isn't just complaining about the injustices done to him, although he is doing that. The most remarkable thing about the psalmist's prayer is that it begins, in verse 1, from a position of trust. Even when suffering, the psalmist doesn't begin with his eyes on his enemy. They're not the ones that the psalmist is ultimately focused on. He keeps his eyes on God. This is only penultimately a prayer about one's enemies, but it's first and last a psalm about God's faithfulness. That's what the psalmist is doing in verse 1. You see, he's looking back at a time when God saved him before. God showed up and acted. He did this for me before. And he's looking forward to the time when God is going to do it again. He's weak, and he, need, he needs God to show up and to do again what he's done before, to act as, as he always does in accordance with his character. So go back to our key theme in the Psalms of ascent, of, of journeying toward God, and we see that the journey to God begins from a place of complete honesty in the first place about our weakness. But, but look, if you look a little bit more closely, put it under the microscope and ask what does our weakness entail? And we see that complete honesty means acknowledging not just weakness in a general sense, like vulnerability against our enemies, or social forces, or political factors, or whatever. 
It means, in particular, acknowledging our need for a Savior. Verse 2, deliver me, O Lord. Save me. I need deliverance. I need salvation. He says, save me. The Hebrew there is nefshi. It means my soul, my whole self, the very essence of me, who I am. I need you, Lord. So we need a Savior. Look on the one hand from enemies on the outside. So if you look at the psalmist, he's surrounded by two kinds of enemies, by open enemies and by false friends. People, both kinds in fact, whose ill will towards him is made clear by their habits of speech. So, okay, on the one hand, these might be open enemies whose sins of the tongue, you know, you kind of expect You expect the people that you're openly in hostility with to talk smack about you. So maybe it's the person who connives against you at work, takes credit for everything you do, undermines you at every point. Or maybe it's anyone and everyone who intends to vote against the person you're going to vote for in November. Political enemy, those are pretty common at the moment political enemy who slanders those of a different viewpoint or even concocts unsubstantiated conspiracy theories which by the way is a form of slander and God says he's going to judge it now on the other hand these enemies they might not be open enemies They don't always reveal their hostility or wear it right there on the sleeve. So then there are these others that fall into the category of false friends. And this seems closer to what the psalmist is describing in verse 2. He says, deliver me, O Lord, save me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Now here's the thing. Who, Who really does damage when they lie about you? It's the people you trust the most. If I want to wound somebody, I get close to them. And then, then I slander them. The more intimately you know someone, the more damage you can inflict by slandering them. You don't even have to lie about someone to slander. uh, Slander them when you're really close to them. If somebody's taken you into his or her trust, all you need to do is raise questions about their character. If I'm supposed to be the most loyal friend you have, I don't have to openly accuse you of anything. It's enough for me to just throw your character into doubt. And when I've done so, when I've undermined your character against my conscience, number one, with no benefit intended to you, number two, and I've said it to someone who can do absolutely nothing about it, number three, I've slandered you. I've been a false friend. The psalmist has these people in his life. Now, maybe you know such people. And maybe you even find that on some days you become like this person yourself. A false friend who betrays the trust of those near to you. Whether through what you say or through what you leave unsaid. The psalmist characterizes such people. 
I identify here as enemies. And I just want to linger for a moment and underline, particularly as we make our way toward November, that the Bible takes very seriously what we say or leave unsaid. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who sows discord among brothers. Or if you go to Romans chapter 1, Paul's giving this litany of sins, various sorts of people who commit sins habitually, and right before haters of God, which is a pretty big one, is slanderers. Or Jesus himself, who calls the devil the consummate liar. When the devil lies, Jesus says, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44. The Bible takes speech seriously. What we say matters. So we need a savior from those who speak against us. And let's hope it's not the case, but let's have the courage to say so if it is, that on occasion, others may need a savior to deliver them from our evil speech or false friendship. And in fact, this prospect, this prospect that maybe we're not just worried about on the enemies on the outside, maybe we're also worried about the enemies on the inside. This prospect does not seem impossible to the psalmist. Because if we need a savior from enemies on the outside, we definitely need a savior from the enemy on the inside. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let me get back to Psalm 120 here. Verses 3 and 4. The psalmist has taken as his starting point faith in the God of Israel. Right? God has shown it before. He's going to show up again. He's delivered before. He's going to deliver again. And only then has the psalmist declared his grievance, the need for deliverance from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Now he goes on, verses 3 and 4, to warn his enemies of what God is going to do when he shows up. So verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's, now here's the threat, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. So it's all about the arrows, right? This is really a threefold threat. I just want to underline three things that the psalmist brings out about these arrows. Number one, he describes their source. They're going to be the arrows of a warrior. And in fact, of the divine warrior himself. The one from whom, we prayed it right at the beginning of the service, the one from whom no secrets are hid will himself deal with those who convey falsehoods and spread lies or half-truths. But there's a second thing. He describes their source, but then he describes their intent. Remember in Star Trek, they've got the little guns, right? And they're, they can always, when they go down, they can set them to stun. Not these arrows. They are not arrows that are intended to stun. They are intended to kill. They're going to be sharp. David puts it this way to God. In his prayer, Psalm 45, verse 5, your arrows, God, are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. God, will, is, he's going to show up and he's going to deal with the psalmist's enemies. And when he does, his judgment is going to be final. And then finally, thirdly, he describes the arrow's effect. These arrows, they're not just bullets. They're missiles. In the ancient Near East, arrows you'd set them aflame, and you'd shoot them in to the enemy's camp. So 
if you're wondering, what on earth are those glowing coals of the broom tree about down there in, in verse 4? Well, the roots and stems of the white broom would hold heat so well that they could be used as charcoal. You could cook on them. And if you affixed them to your arrow, you could shoot them in wherever your enemy lived and burn the camp to the ground. Now, this, this little detail about the broom coal shows us one significant element about the promise of God's deliverance. There's this old Jewish story about these two men who set a fire somewhere with this white broom tree. And then they go off, they live. Next year they come back. And the fire is still burning. The ashes are still burning. Now it's, it's rabbinic hyperbole. Absolutely wouldn't have happened. But it shows that these arrows would have been intended to take down not only the enemies themselves, they're not just bullets, but also the effects of their lies, their missiles. The whole edifice of deceit, treachery, falsehood, mistrust, they're going to come crashing down in the scorching fury of God's settled and measured wrath against evil. The psalmist at at this point, he's pointing forward to the day that God's going to judge. And, and, and at least momentarily here in verses 3 and 4, he ceased to emphasize the personal judgment against his enemies, those open enemies, those false friends. And instead, he's emphasizing the way that God will judge every word, every deed, every thought, every attitude, holding everyone, the psalmist included, accountable. And this is perfectly clear if you go into the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, by the way, after Sunday, did I preach last week? I did, right? After Sunday last week, um, I, made a, I made a kind of arrogant comment during that sermon. And I think I was right. But I also said it in a snide way that communicated glee and correction. That was a careless word. I'm going to answer for that. Now, if this is true, if the difference between heaven or hell hangs on a word, like Jesus says that it does. How can anyone possibly be saved? If God is really the God set forth by the Bible, the God that judges not just deeds, but my words, and even the unfulfilled intentions of my heart, if God is really like the Bible says he is, if I'm really like what the Bible says I'm really like, then how could I possibly be delivered? I mean, forget salvation from the open enemies and the false friends. Who cares about them? How am I to be saved from the enemy on the inside? Paul says it in Romans 7. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, brothers and sisters, the good news is that the God who will leave every treachery a burning coal, he will not quench a smoldering wick. 
Those who show themselves proud before him, who cling to their performance as the basis for their standing with him. Those like the religious leaders who who trusted in their own righteousness, even while they slandered the Savior of the world. Such people need to consider with their eyes wide open what the Bible is saying here. Those who trust in their own righteousness, on their own record, they cannot be saved. But, you know, I can think of somebody else who lied, who perjured himself when the king of glory went to a sham trial. Like the Pharisees, the apostle Peter failed to own Christ as his master. He perjured himself in the courtyard as his savior was tried by thugs and cowards and traitors. And while the truth himself was being tried in a courtroom of lies, Peter was out in the courtyard and he failed to speak the truth about Jesus. And that failure in itself, that omission, the failure to testify to who Jesus is when it really counts, that's no different from the open deceitfulness of the Pharisees. Now the good news, the good news, is that when Peter came before the risen Christ, he received forgiveness. And why? I mean, go back to what we were talking about at the beginning. The starting place for the journey toward God is complete honesty. Peter owned his sin. He declared it openly before God and his fellow disciples. He stopped telling lies about Jesus. He started telling the truth. And then what, what, what do you see? You see, in, like right at the end of John's gospel, Jesus has all of the disciples together. And he asks Peter these questions. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you, yeah, I love you. And he says, Simon, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. What gives? Jesus, Jesus is peeling back every layer of the onion. He is unpeeling Peter's shame. He is going through Peter's sin and his lies and his treachery because that's what it is. And he is reaching down and he is pulling up a disciple who will go out into the world with the news of his forgiveness on his lips. So they have a meal together and Jesus restores him. And this is what the Lord does to all who truly turn to him. He will leave every lie like a burning, smoldering coal. Every treachery, every deceit, he will destroy. But to those who come to him, who with complete honesty recognize their need for him. To such people, Christ shows his tenderness. So come to him. Maybe you are a Christian, and today this is just a call for you to go higher up and further in. And if that's you, then come to him. And if it's the first time, come to him. He will not quench you. He will deliver you, not only from open enemies, not only from false friends, 
but from the enemy inside. And when he's done it, you're not going to be able to contain yourself. And you will go out into the world like Peter with the news of your forgiveness on your lips. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.